Hi, everybody. Welcome to uh, this week's podcast. Sorry, a slightly different beginning there. I thought I'd uh, start with something that was kind of a scene setter, so to speak. Um, so that was an old solo um, that I played on, on a tune that I wrote in 1991 um, called Cornerstone which is a terrible name. Uh, I've been terrible at naming tunes. It's awful, awful kind of names. And it's going to play on the thing of the drums at the cornerstone of whatever, you know, nonsense. Anyway, um, today's podcast, as you've seen from the title, is about soloing. And, uh, and it's definitely, this is definitely not a podcast that's just about, you know, like, epic drum solos and this that that's not what it's about it's a bit of a different take on the soloing concept but it's definitely a take on what my concept of the drum solo or drum soloing has always been and uh talk i'm just going to talk a little bit about the sort of story of that which i did i did talk a little bit about that in previous podcasts and especially in episode one the very first one that i made called down the rabbit hole which is, is this thing about, you know, when you get into things and that sort of that getting into things culture and how is maybe that's not as, um, you know, not as many people are getting into that kind of uh, that kind of culture these days because of so many so many different choices we have on the Internet. But um, but I, I did talk about my kind of obsession with Buddy Rich and things and, and that kind of, you know, the, the, the kind of history of soloing for me very much came from uh this culture of the sort of epic drum solo. And I think it had a, a kind of huge impact upon me um, in, in, in a way which maybe um, maybe you might not expect or, or I certainly didn't expect. Um, but, yeah, before I kind of get into all that, I just wanted to say uh, hello, welcome back. Um, I'm going to put a few clips in today's uh, podcast because I'm just going to talk a bit about my kind of approach to soloing so i've got some little clips that i'm going to drop in and out of this uh, as i'm going along uh, it's a new thing for me i did uh, in that in the podcast is about process i did put a little clip into that which was just a single clip and i just decided i did i recorded a few uh, little clips today resources they call them you know um, we call them that in academia you know get your resources together and uh, I just did some very quick little solo things today as examples to talk about this of this kind of overarching thing about 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 my approach to soloing and about what soloing means to me on the drums and what it maybe is you know is different to what maybe other people think about soloing or what soloing is you know so um but that yeah that so that excerpt at the beginning it was from this piece. I used to, I basically used to have this idea of of writing pieces of music um, in order to be able to play the drums solo. Uh, and what I mean by that is by playing along with sequences. And it was kind of from, the, from this sort of culture in the eighties of these um, this sort of drum video culture. Vinnie did one, and quite a few other sort of artists where they playing along to these horrific kind of sequence of things that are sort of you know they've got this very very dated sound now and as you can probably hear from that clip uh, i mean that and the quality is very poor as well so i'll just explain 
the background of that clip as well because basically that clip was recorded onto a quarter-inch tape onto an 8-track, an Ampex 8-track, um, I think it was an Ampex, uh, tape machine that a friend of mine had. And when I moved back from London, um, I was kind of trying to find things interesting to do because I'd sort of lost all my sort of musical social network and I was sort of creating a new social network with with, with, with playing and getting to play with people. Um, and I'd bought... Uh, I bought a D20 keyboard, a, a Roland D20 keyboard. It had a sequencer on it, and I learned to use sequencers, and I was really, uh, it was something I really, really wanted to do. Because in 1987, I'd seen this gig with Jack Jeanette and John Sermon. Um, they were touring uh, one of their albums. They did a lot of duo albums uh, at that time. They had quite a few on ECM records. I think the album they were doing is called Simon Simon, I think. Uh, anyway, you could look it up. Um but that's that's by the by. I went to see them live in '87 at the Royal Northern in the Opera Theatre. There, uh, it's a nice room. That's so it's a it's a it's a better room in their kind of concert hall. It's got a better acoustic for jazz and stuff. And uh, one of the things that they uh, they had uh, when they were performing was they had this piece where John Sermon was playing soprano sax, Jeanette was playing drums, and then they had all this. They had all these kind of samplers and stuff, and they were playing these ostinato kind of arpeggiated things that they were playing over the top of. And I just thought, this is like a brilliant thing. What a great vibe, you know, just to have something that's kind of going along in the background that's just got a subdivision. Um, and it, this is really where this kind of I have, I have a bit of an obsession with ostinatos and, and subdivision. And you probably notice if anybody listens to any of the stuff that I write and put on Instagram and things, a lot of it's got these uh, ostinato-y kind of subdivisional-based things, you know. Uh, and I might put a couple of those into this clip, actually. Um, in fact, I'll stick one in now. So there you go. So it's something really typical uh, of things that I like to write. Um, I sort of write two things, really. I like writing very nice tunes. I just like writing very simple, diatonic music. But also, I like messing around with kind of analog synth uh, virtual instruments and messing around with the filters and, and the way in which they... Um, and the way in which they kind of they they produce these kind of ostinato things that go around within a, within a rhythmical cycle of whatever the tempo is. And so I'm always kind of editing those sounds, just tweaking the filters and messing around with them um, as much as as much as I can, you know, as much as I know about that kind of technology. Um, and so it was kind of something that a long time ago I was really into this idea of of having of I've been able to sort of play along with sequenced music. Now, so I bought this D this D20. I learned to use a sequencer, and I quick, quickly ran out of power and memory and stuff. It was I was I was kind of getting frustrated with it quite 
quite quickly. And it used to run off floppy disks, you know, and you used to load, have to load the tune in. And it had, I don't know what the memory was. It, it was like probably like 6,000 notes or something. It didn't have a huge amount of memory for events, you know, and pitch bend obviously took up lots more events. So it was all the time I had these kind of, you know, you're always in the early days of any kind of computers, if you were dealing with small amounts of RAM or whatever, you were always really being efficient with how you used the available resources. And anyway, I, I, I wrote this piece um, in 1991 called, um, it was called The Motions Suite. Uh, again, a terrible name. My, my late mother said to me, that's, that's not not a great name you know it sounds like you, you go into the toilet you know or something about going to the loo you know and uh, my, my mother was she was a nurse you know and, and it's obviously you know they referred to uh, a certain event as emotion um <laughs> so but anyway i had this thing about 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 moving the drums and you know, the motion of drumming and the movement of drums and stuff so i wrote this thing called the motion suite i had five movements there are all sort of different styles and different this, that, and the other, you know. And I wrote it on the sequence, on the D20. And I, I got to record that uh, down at an old friend of mine was at university down in Kiel. And we went to the, uh, to the university studio and we recorded it. And we didn't multi-track it. We just did it sort of stereo to dap with the drums mic'd up. But there was no mixing kind of involved in it. Um, and somewhere I've still got a copy of that on DAT, but I don't have a DAT player, so I couldn't uh, have it, put an example of that on here. It's a shame because I quite like some of it. It was quite interesting music. It was very much in the early days of me writing music as well, and I was sort of flailing around all over the place, to be honest with you. But um, the next thing I got into sort of writing was I, I sold the D20 and I bought a U20, which was a much better keyboard, and I bought... Also, a um, an external sequencer which had much more memory, and it had, it had a floppy drive again. But it was a much more interesting sequencer, and uh, and basically, I, I wrote this piece called Cornerstone, and it was about twelve, thirteen minutes long, and uh, I recorded it at uh, a friend at the time. He had this little studio in his attic, and it was basically, you know, he was running. Um, he had a, a sort of sixteen-channel analog desk. And um, he had this, I'm sure it was a Ampex, or maybe it wasn't, but it was a quarter-inch tape. I've still got the tapes. i still actually got the original tapes of that, bizarrely. Um, and, you know, tried to mix it and all that, and it was okay. Then it went on to cassette, so it was mixed down to cassette. This was the days before CDs and before CD burners and all that stuff. That that came 96-ish was when CD burners started to become affordable in the UK. Um, so it transferred itself to cassette and then it uh, basically transferred itself across a couple of other cassettes and then it eventually ended up in... I've got this thing on my on one of my hard drives here. It's got a tape archive of stuff that I had on tape which I put into an old, onto an old PC, onto Cubase, and, and it's basically, it made its way on there. So uh, the quality is really poor, sadly, but the actual, you know, the actual sound quality of it. Um, 
but the sounds as well are all very, very dated. And you can hear the splash on there. I used to have two splashes on my kit, early 90s. This was the um, this was the Manu Katche period, the, the golden era of, sort of late 80s, early 90s. Peter Gabriel Sting, you know, all that sort of Vinny. And everybody had splashes. I had 11 splashes, not, not on the kit at one time, but I owned 11 different splashes at one time. And, and to be honest with you, up till about 2000, my regular drum kit set up, and anyone who played me around the late, late 90s, even on jazz gigs, I was it was a ride two crashes and a splash. You know, I always had the splash on my kit. Little, It was at the time an 8-inch Zildjian, and then I had this 6-inch Sabian, which I've still got, actually. I don't play it anymore. It's just something I've kept. But bought from this bizarre little music shop in Sweden where this guy had... Um, he just had loads of splashes for sale. Um, yeah, very, very strange. But anyway, um, so I just thought I'd put that clip in at the top to, as this kind of thing of sort of talking about soloing and to maybe give you some ideas or some inspiration to maybe approach soloing in a different way than maybe you think about it. Because um, there's supposed to be some kind of educational value to some of these podcasts, I hope. And today I, I want to kind of share with you my take on soloing. I don't really like drum solos. Um, and, it, and I come from a background of being really, really into solos. And I used to play very long solos. When I was 15, 16, when I was at school, with, and we had a jazz quartet at school, which I, I think I've talked about in that same early podcast, uh, I used to play really long solos in the middle of the gigs. Well, we all did, actually. The piano player used to, and the, the, and the guy, the clarinet player, the sax player did. And uh, the bass player did as well. And and the, the, the last one was always the drum solo. It's an epic, like, 15-minute-long, like, nightmare, you know. It's, I've got to feel sorry for anyone who listened to it. But um, that was born of this tradition for me of I went to see, as, as I've mentioned before, Buddy Rich when I was 14, and I went to see him again when I was 16. Um, I was probably actually was eighteen. It was it was eighty two and eighty six. The, the the year just before he died, but the eighty two was the real concert that had the massive massive influence on me because there was this thing of him playing solos in the music, like I still do, but then there was this thing of him playing a solo, like a long featured solo on West Side Story, the West Side Story medley, and I've I've actually done that arrangement with a with a guy called Ronnie Bottomley's. Uh, jazz orchestra ronnie's a, a great drummer and a brilliant arranger and ronnie's in his 90s now and ronnie asked me to do that uh, arrangement about four years ago and I, and I agreed i didn't really want to do it but i did it and again you know you do the big solo in the middle i, I think i i think i max, lasted max 10 minutes i've never seen a clip of it actually i don't think it was videoed i don't know whether there was any evidence of it but uh it was one of those weird ones. It's very nice. I got a, an email from somebody in America, actually, who was bizarrely at the gig. And they, when they got home to America, they sent me this really very nice email saying uh, how wonderful it was and uh, nostalgic they were about it and all that. And, oh, you know, it was very nice of them to email me. Um, I just found the whole thing a massive stress um, because it's, there's so much history with that drum soloing thing, you know, Gene Krupa and... Sam Woodyard and all these amazing drummers, even Lionel Hampton and people, and obviously Louis Belson and Rich himself, and then the kind of modern culture. I grew up with like the Carl Palmer thing, the Emerson Lake and Palmer, and you know Carl Palmer was playing timps and gongs and juggling his drumsticks, and 
incredible kind of ability. And so the whole thing for me was was drum solos were this massive sort of epic event where you had to get all of your technique out, all your ideas, everything, and you got to lay it all bare and express yourself. And uh, and that kind of changed for me when I started writing music in the early in the early nineties because I kind of stopped. I got out of that culture of the sort of long drum solo thing when I went to London and I started playing small group jazz with people, and I realised. That was like a horrific thing to be kind of, you know, saying to people, I'm going to do it with long solo. Nobody wants to hear that rubbish. You know, they just want you to play time and, and play nice, play a nice vibe and play a nice groove. So that whole period for me was a really, really tough period of, of re, really re-evaluating re my whole existence on the drums, you know. I mean, gone from a situation where I was playing in the way, just in this kind of very single-minded way to realising that, the, you know, the, the world out there requires you to do sort of different things. So I got into writing music, and then I got into this thing of playing, like, drums with sequences. And so I wrote these various pieces of music. And, and basically, that culture still exists for me now but i look at it very differently i write those pieces now as 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 i've said before as as things to practice to so it's kind of that whole thing has kind of been put to bed for me now the thing that i did do i did a, a masters an m muz uh, a number of years ago and uh, i had to do three recitals through the trimesters and my the focus of my study changed during the um, during the masters because of the, just because of the nature of the way the, these things go. You know, these the sort of academic circles they do uh, they sort of, they don't push you in a direction, but they you know they're, they're being prompted to to maybe look at things in a different way. And my whole thing, my whole premise that I when I did my kind of interview to do this masters was. I wanted to demonstrate uh, technique within three different arenas. I wanted to demonstrate technique within the acoustic jazz arena, being able to play with full intent within that arena. Then I wanted to do a drum solo gig, which was really harking back to these early days of my development. You know, I really wanted to sort of explore that space. And I did a whole gig. I did three pieces in that gig. I did one with a loop pedal. I did one that was just a solo. Um, and then I did this thing called Four Zones. Again, an, another terrible name, but uh, the Four Zones thing was four rhythmical ostinato layers, essentially, in this piece of music that I explored. So the, the whole thing's in 4-4. Four, four. I think I may have even talked about this before, but it's in 4-4, four, four, but the, the, the underlying ostinato is in three. The main thing is actually in four over the top of it in the same division. And then you've got, uh, so you've got those two different rhythmical things that are existing next to each other in the same subdivision. And then you've got the metric thing over the top of the three and over the top of the four. Um, so there was these four kind of different rhythmical things that I was playing around with during that um, that piece. And I actually recorded that piece uh, kind of not properly, but I did it, I did it reasonably good justice. Uh, after the recital, I did a lot of prep before the recital. I, I wrote this piece of music. It was 13 or 14 minutes long. Um, and then I did the recital and I'd done a lot of prep. I'd done a lot of video in. And uh, if you go back to my early Instagram, 
uh, right back when I first got into Instagram, you'll find a lot of clips that were pre-recital clips of that piece of music. And it got tweaked a lot and edited a lot. Um, But then on YouTube, if you go on my YouTube channel now, if you find my YouTube channel, which is, uh, I don't know, Dave Walsh. I don't know what it's under, to be honest with you. You'll find it. Dave Walsh, drummer or something. Um, You'll find the full uh, piece on there. Um, which I recorded and managed to get a take, and it was like epic, you know. It's a long, long piece, and it's it's actually very, very. It's quite an endurance piece because I was playing that piece. I was playing quite loud for me, for my style of playing, and it's quite rocky, and it requires this accuracy, which you know, it's hard to keep this subdivisional accuracy going. So, um, but that was again, I kind of explored this thing of of the drum solo. And then the third gig, anyway, was a electric trio. So dealing with the electric kind of um, sound world with technique and basically trying to demonstrate the same level of intent. So through and through all my kind of study at the master's level, I had some lessons, uh, really, you know, some really nice lessons. Uh, not too many, but just in, you know enough to, to kind of help me along with some stuff I was thinking about. Um, and, yeah, and then I'd, I was playing with the with uh, my good friend Jamil Sharif, uh, playing with his trio. We were doing a lot of gigs before that um, with Pete Turner, the trio. We'd done an album, and then we did a lot of gigs, quite a long tour around the UK, touring that. Um, and then, so, I was able to sort of use that project. I did a 25-minute recital using some of that, material that was definitely some of the stuff that was uh, more focused on the drums and then i did my solo recital then the third one was with the spark trio with nick spark and gary jackson uh two good friends of mine and that that trio that existed at that time uh very rocky and improvised trio very kind of in the spirit of that wayne crancy keith carlocky sort of vibe sort of it's not really because it's british it's not american and and it's more i'd say it's more rocky than fusiony personally and a bit a bit more violent actually uh, just like more less slick more aggressive and more open in my opinion less kind of um we you know the metric things and stuff in that when none of it's worked out it's all like literally listening thing whereas i think the, you know the, the Krantz stuff i think they definitely had specific gears uh, which they were using as vehicles which is equally valid it's just a different vibe you know so, anyway, that was kind of the end of you know doing, doing that kind of study, and uh, and so all that, all this kind of music that I was kind of writing after that was all I was writing it all really for practicing stuff, and I got into this thing of like, oh yeah, I want to practice this tempo, this style, at this speed, and got quite quick at writing things, uh, and I haven't really written anything like that uh, properly, seriously since then. That I would that I would consider as a piece of music to write, and it's certainly not in 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 the sort of mind of the drum solo, because basically, the drum solo thing for me for the last, I'd say fifteen years or so has been a very different thing, and it's been about two things that are connected to each other, um, but uh, there's a kind of third element to this which I'll talk about in some of the examples. But essentially, when I'm teaching, the thing that 
um, I'm trying to put across with um, with my soloing or about helping people with soloing is finding effective ways to solo within a form. So when I say a form, I mean I mean a musical form, a a twelve bar or a sixteen bar or an eight bar or thirty two bar form within music. And playing a solo that stays within that form and it gets away from this thing of what I used to do is this free-for-all soloing where I just go completely out of time, completely out of form, do whatever I like, then count the band back in and off we'd go, which was very much for me like that culture, the Buddy Rich culture and stuff, very much felt like that, the, the long solos, the kind of free-form solos. Uh, but it was great because I learned to kind of solo and have a kind of freedom in, in that, in in that way of soloing when I was younger that, that really taught me some interesting things about that I can use now in my approach to soloing, particularly stuff that's that's less say technical and is more textural. Um, but essentially, what I'm always talking to my students about is about melodic soloing. Is about trying to understand melody, understand the melody that you're playing. We should know the tune. And we should know the form. Um, and obviously the style and the tempo come as well. All very, very important stuff. But if you know a melody well, and you can sing a melody, then you actually end up being in quite a powerful position as a drummer because it can really make your solo in uh, a lot more interesting for the other musicians playing around you. It can be less kind of drum-focused and more kind of uh, melodically focused or... I'm not going to say more musical because I, I don't believe any any one's more musical than the other. I, I think that I think that people that solo with patterns and, and, and chopsy solos and all that has, has a musical value of its own that doesn't have any less validity, and that's not what I'm saying here at all. I don't solo like that, uh, and I can't solo like that for for various reasons. One is it's just like the chops thing. I don't I don't do the chops thing. But I don't have the heart for it either. And I think you've got to really believe in yourself and, and have the heart to do something well, you know. And it's like, I put some things in the notes here about like why I wasn't going to talk about pattern or chop-based solos because, like, let's face it, there's thousands of them out there. You can just go on any social media platform now and you can go and see some incredible players, you know, Go and watch the original Tony Royston when he was being taught by Dennis Chambers, that drum video. Go and watch Tony playing when he was like 12 or whatever he was, and then Dennis playing on that, Dennis Chambers. It's like, it's ridiculous. Go and watch Chris Coleman, you know, Gospel Chop, the king of Gospel Chops. Just go and watch that guy. Go and watch Vinny, you know. Go and watch uh, Virgil Donati. I mean, I could just go on and on and on and on and on. And I, you know, yeah. That's not how I solo, and I never will, and, and I don't. I don't have a heart for it. I don't have the chops for it. It's not something that interests me. I have a very different approach to soloing. And, you know, uh, variety makes the world go around, and that's a good thing. So, yeah, so that I'm definitely not going to, like, talk about that type of soloing. So if you're kind of, if you've come here for this kind of, some sort of, I don't know, secret um, formula to being able to solo with some ridiculous chops and things. This isn't really the podcast for you. But one thing I will say is the rudimental vocabulary and books like Stick Control and Four-Way Coordination, um, just those three resources 
if you want to get into pattern-based improvising and pattern-based soloing where you're getting around the instrument and you're reorchestrating patterns uh, between your hands and your feet so you're you're taking you know you're you're re-sticking things in inverted commas and, and putting them into the feet instead of the hands then though you know the rudimental sort of any any rudimental source and those other sources I've mentioned, particularly stick control, they're great resources. And also transcribing, you know, transcribe players that you like, that's going to get you much, much quicker and uh, closer to to the players that you may be into than maybe trying to work it out for yourself. There's so many resources online, you want to work out whatever's chop on whatever tune, there'll be a vid, someone will have transcribed it and be playing it on um, on YouTube, you'll be able to do all that stuff. That's great. What I'm talking about today is about the way I solo and maybe it might be interesting for you to approach things in this way because the ultimate thing about approaching things in the way I talk about is you will never sound like me, thank God, and you will never sound like the next person that does exactly the same approach. You will always sound like you because the fundamental thing of of the way I solo is that I have a strong understanding of my own vocabulary and what i mean by that is is the is the language that i speak when i am playing solos the patterns that i use or the rudiments or whatever they are i've got a really strong understanding of what they are and the way that i make them my own and i've talked about this in previous podcasts is about basically articulation and dynamics and orchestration and being able to utilise certain technical approaches to make those things sound interesting. And I use those ideas and those approaches to some of my improvising. So the first thing I was going to give you, I was going to play three examples now of, of what I would call as a melodic solo or something that uses melody. Um, so the tune I'm, I'm uh, going to use today is a tune called Oleo, Sonny Rollins' tune. Uh, it's rhythm changes and it's a great tune and I talk about this a lot when I'm teaching with students Um, it has very interesting rhythmical structure very simple to understand when you know the tune and it's a great vehicle to improvise off so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to play well what I recommend is I'm not not going to play the original of Olio because um, because you can just go and look that up yourself just go on uh, you know, anyway, YouTube or something, just or Spotify, just type Sonny Rollins Olio and you'll hear the uh, the melody of it. And there's loads and loads and loads and loads of different versions of it. But what I'm going to do now is I'm going to play three versions of me soloing on that tune. And um, I'm going to talk a little bit after each one about what the approach is. So here's the first example. If you know the tune, then I think you'll probably recognise what I'm doing there. 
Um, and the if the this is this is like the tempo one two three four ba ba dee da do da dee da da so that's the AA part of it. And then there's a B section which is just uh, changes. There's no melody. Uh, and then it's A again. And, it, and it's the same A as the second A. Um, so the B section always presents us with a challenge because we basically don't have a melody to solo off. So if we're if we're improvising on that tune, um, there's different things that can happen. If you're doing the exchanges soloing in a trio jazz situation, then what's going to happen is you're never going to improvise. If you're doing eights on the B section anyway, you're going to be you're going to be doing the second eight and the last eight every time. So you're always going to have that melodic structure. If you're taking a solo over the whole tune, then you're going to have to solo over the B section, which means we're going to have to use some vocabulary, some rudimental language because there's no mel there's no melody solo around. But well, what I'm going to play now is a less melodic version of the of the solo, very very similar but slightly looser. So check this out now. One thing that I was definitely focusing on there was uh, just making the rhythm a little bit straighter and maybe more laid back. But what this kind of this approach to soloing definitely does for me is it allows me to explore the ideas that come from the melodic structure. So like that first part of that, if you listen to it again, if you go back, um instead of the rhythm being bat ba da da do da it's now t4 da do da ba do da and it's like immediately that will draw or influence the rest of the of the line that i'm going to play just that 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 kind of rhythmical freedom will give me the option to go back and use that or to just ignore it and, and carry on with whatever the next part of the narrative is but it's just that thing of of the ideas that come from the melodic structure of just utilising that melodic kind of line in order to help ideas happen is is then feeds what happens after it. I'm really not thinking at all about what I'm doing um, in relation to what I'm actually playing, like the patterns. Uh, it's really about trying to follow a kind of melodic line. So this is, I'm going to play, like, this is a third example now. And this, again, is I just call this with more space and kind of less melodic, um, less melodic line. But 
I'll talk a little bit about what I was focusing on uh, just after this clip. So check this out. So you can still hear bits of melodic structure in that, but the the thing I'm really focusing, like you'll notice there, the B section wasn't a time-based thing. It was still kind of in that abstract, slightly abstract um, way of playing. There's very little vocabulary in there. There's some triplets, some right, left, left sort of triplet thing that was like just I just kind of followed that idea through a few bars. But the main thing I'm thinking about when I'm playing that and focusing on is just anchor points of melody. And what I mean by that is there are certain points in the melody where I would say uh, they're like kind of bigger anchor points of the tune and they're sort of they're, they're part, parts of the melody where I feel like the articulation is stronger. So one thing I get students to do is to, is to work out... Um, you know, a tune like that or another rhythm. Rhythm changes tunes are good because they're played off the page. Uh, they're not interpreted tunes like um, like we have when we have standards. You know, um, like all the things you are or something. These tunes are in, uh, often interpreted. They're not played as they're written a lot of the time. They're, they're, they're rhythmically certainly. Um, you know, they've got sort of rhythmical um, interpretation going on placement and all that kind of stuff of the, of the melody whereas the rhythm changes tunes people play them off like they play bark or something they play them off the page and uh, and it's all in the vocabulary is in in and the improvisation the vocabulary is where where the kind of real magic is and where people express themselves you know and it's like a there's a real understanding of sort of tradition and canon but they do their own thing with it and it's the same for drums but the great thing for for us with that kind of melodic structure is because it's because it's so fixed we can use that to our advantage we can use it as something that we can play off it's and and everybody around you in the band because they know the melody so well because they're so connected to it because they're playing it or they're, they're supporting it with changes or with bass lines or whatever they can really hear you connecting to melody and i just think that like a lot of instrumentalists warm to drummers that definitely have that approach to improvisation when they're playing, uh, especially jazz, but in, actually in any kind of music. But this uh, this is more of a jazz kind of tradition sort of soloing. Um, so, yeah, think about those anchor points in tunes, you know. Um, think about how you can uh, really understand a melodic structure in a deeper way, you know. And then it starts to make you solo in, in, in your own way. And then you start to hear your own sort of melodies and your own melodic structure. So I'm going to play you another like swing solo now, which is not the same, but it's kind of got 
a thematic thing. See if you can hear what the what the sort of thematic thing is in this solo. So what do you think? What, what, what do you think the um, the theme is there? Um, I, I've got a strong idea. Obviously, I played the solo. so um, But for me, it's about one kind of rhythmical um, shape. I call it like a shape, you know, a rhythmical phrase or something. And reorchestrating and using that phrase just around the instrument in, in very simply. Uh, and then just it's like concentrating on things like, like for me, like touch and sound are really more important than the technical side of it. Uh, they're the, the the touch and the sound are the are the drivers for what makes it sound the way it does, and and what what gives it that kind of um, certain sort of articulation. And and it's always I'm always wanting to make the listener kind of want to get closer to what I'm playing. Um, so there's always this thing about trying to make it sound nice so that people aren't pushed away from you in this kind of oh like drums it's just this like horrific kind of oh, loud thing you know. Uh, I'm always trying to play in a way where. Uh, I'm drawing people in. And and that comes from when I was in 2005, I was very lucky to see Brian Blade play quite close up. Um, uh, and it was with Wolfgang Muschbiel with his trio at the time. Um, it was Matt Pemmon on bass, actually. It was um, He was depping uh, for... He was very young then. Uh, who was Mark Johnson, I think, was the actual bass player who was supposed to be on the gig. But anyway, anyway he sounded amazing. But um, but Blade, the thing that blew my mind about the fact that he's an amazing player and all that, and we go on and wax lyrical about him all day, um, the thing that amazed me about him was his ability to draw you in to his playing, draw you into his sound and make you really, really listen to him because, of one, his sound's really beautiful. He's got a beautiful sound. He's got an amazing articulation like a level of detail is technically the way he plays it's got such great clarity so it's very easy to listen to him so he's got these two amazing things going on like he sounds beautiful and he's got clarity in his sound as well so uh and so you, you know you could have a you could have great clarity like everything's very clear but I have a spiky sound and i lo- i know lots of drummers like that or you can have a beautiful sound, but like it's a little bit, everything's a little bit muddy and not quite that clear, which is great as well. But it's Blade has both those things, and he has a ton of other things as well. You know, it's just where you know what what comes before what and what drives what we don't know. But it's just he's like 
you know, people call him the perfect drummer, don't they? You know, he's 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 pretty amazing guy. You know, pretty amazing. So, I, I it became an ambition of mine after two thousand and five. After seeing him, was to just try and do things in that way. Well, not try. You know, don't, you don't want to be trying to to just have an approach to playing that was basically that that was what its bedrock was. Um, I think the thing that I've always been quite lucky with is I've always had a nice sound anyway, fundamentally. And I think that comes from like three things. One is I like melody. I like listening to front line, like vocalists and melody. I like brightness in music. And I had a, I have a classical, you know, upbringing tradition with drums and, and percussion. I was classically trained. So I, I have that kind of side of, I think, side of touch um, is quite well was quite well developed at a young age, you know. I'm into I'm into like cymbal rolls and you know that kind of that kind of sound world. And I think having an appreciation of the instrument in that way does help you with you know generating a nice sound. So I'm going to play another little solo now, which is like a kind of traditional swing solo, really. So it's really going back to a very like a kind of a simpler version of all the things I've played with. Then we're going to move away from the swing thing and talk about some other styles. Um, so check this little solo out. always interesting when you hear yourself back and you you know you've been uh, you hear a solo back and you're like thinking, oh yeah hmm, yeah oh what was that what what is it saying what is it what is it saying to me you know um so i i would always in this kind of style of music and i was i would always be thinking you know about that about trying to communicate something try and draw people into your sound and draw people into a little story because it should be a little story, really. It should be something that, one, that you want to listen to again. So I'm always saying that to, or like all the instrumentalists that I come into contact with, I'm teaching, I should say, you know, like as a composition, the improvisation that you play should be something you you want to listen to again and again as as you would a piece of music that you'd write. You know, you wouldn't want to just play an improvisation and like, God, I don't ever want to hear that again. Uh, I mean, you most of us don't because it's all happened in the moment but if it was to be recorded and it was to be on an album then you'd certainly want to you know if someone's going to release it then you definitely want to be proud of it so you you know there should be that kind of fundamental thing in everything that we do as, as a kind of as a benchmark you know so uh, but that's the kind of swing thing so I was going to play you some other examples of, of different types of soloing now so this is one um I do there's a couple of like groove I do a couple of sort of groovy things. Now when I say groovy I mean the sort of maybe uh 
that's maybe more based upon rock or or funky a sort of funky thing or whatever and even with these sorts of solos um a lot of the time i see the melodic structure in 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 the in funky music as actually the, the drums itself um because you know in, in some some sort of styles of funky music a lot of it's just kind of gr- like it's just groove isn't it we're just grooving and there's like like maybe a keyboard thing or a guitar thing ba- the bass is so happening you know and they often think like the bass is such a great underscore for melody anyway it should all great bass lines jameson or whatever jimmy johnson or somebody you know there are all these amazing bass players have this amazing underscore they 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 pin they pin the music to the ground they make it feel grounded and, and understood but they also have this kind of counter melody and this kind of fugal almost fugal quality to what they do these great bass players they just put these lovely little things under melody you know all the really good bass players I play with um, are great. I like Richard Hammond, a guy I play with a lot. He's like amazing at that, of being able to just pick little moments where he'll just play something, just choose a great little, very, very tasteful. And it's all of the music. It's not of the ego, you know. It's all of the music. And so if we can have that vibe in, in the drums and uh, be driven in that way, then, yeah, I think that's a good thing. So let me just, like, I'm going to play this little clip now of like a groovy kind of solo. So very much, yeah, it's, it's very much following like a stream of consciousness thing. But I really like solos like that. And I remember I was listening to like uh, Jon Christensen, who's uh, just sadly died uh, not that long ago, and listened to an album like Solstice. This band called, sorry, called Solstice with Garbrecht and Ralph Towner. And there's these sort of broken up funky grooves that I was really, really into when I was younger, you know. And that feels very much like, <clears throat> to me, like a similar thing. It's got this... It's definitely got like a melodicness about it between that sort of relationship between the high at the snare and the bass drum. So I'll play you another one now, which is maybe a little bit more straight ahead.
stick on symbol at the end there. Um, so yeah, that's like again the melody is just it's that between that sort of snare and more between the sort of snare and bass drum thing for me in that. But it's just that one just slightly develops a little bit more as just like fills, but fills that are kind of uh, like there's a fill played and then it's kind of re-explored and then it goes back to the groove again and you know. So it's just, I, I like those kind of sullen around things like that as well, where I'm not kind of afraid to explore where some little embellishment will take me, you know. I don't feel like, oh, I, I need to keep this the hi-hat going, or I need to keep the bass drum going, or I need to keep whatever going. It's just really about following whatever the ideas that are coming out are, you know. So... um Maybe I'll play a little, maybe almost like a little sort of salsery influenced kind of thing. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll play you this one. It's again, it's because it's based upon so this kind of idea of, uh, of solos that where we we kind of base around have a stylistic base, you know, and that's one of those things where we get the kind of fear sometimes on gigs. Oh, I'm doing a, I'm doing a, a Latin gig. I'm going to have to solo like, sound like some sort of authentic percussionist. And really what it is, is about having a bit of knowledge of the style. And again, knowing what your vocabulary is, having a bit of stylistic knowledge, you know, just enough to, to I, w- I would say, to be respectful. And then sort of following your own ideas and your own vocabulary. And this is kind of very much like that kind of vibe. Check it, check it out. So yeah, I hope you can hear in that it's like the two things I was talking about. One is there's like a stylistic understanding, I think, and the second is me using my own vocabulary and allowing me to to uh, follow my own sort of narrative with the solo and not be thinking I have to play in some kind of tradition and do a sort of traditional style solo which follows certain rules. I'm just using the style bass and then i'm basically just following the the, my own narrative my own ideas um, that are within my vocabulary so you know i if i'm doing a if i'm doing a latin solo you know latin whatever that means in that style 
um, I've got to find a way of interpreting that style from who I am and my own heritage, you know, my own kind of how I've grown up and what I understand about rhythm and music and whatever. And the more knowledge that I have, the, the more things I've got to call upon. Um, but I've also got to say, you know, I like to say what I like to say about the music that I'm playing with in that moment. So it's important for me to also have that ability to feel free and be able to follow my own narrative. So, um, yeah, there's another, actually another little nice swingy example here. Just uh, check this out. So that like that solo really again it's like a thing really marries two worlds for me it's like a straight thing going on the straight vibe straight feel with the swingy thing so it's got that kind of jazzy swingy sound world but it also reminds me a little bit of that the european jazz kind of playing and uh, there, it was a big influence upon me that sound you know because I, I was listening to a lot of ecm records in the late 80s 90s through the noughties and still listen to them now you know and uh and i always like this kind of idea of kind of textural soloing like more abstract kind of solo and exploring the drums uh the sound world of the drums in different ways so i've got like three examples here of what i would call more abstract kind of playing but I'm using the same approach as I've talked about now. I'm following a melodic narrative of, of what the solo presents itself as I'm playing it. It's got its own sort of, uh, you know, melodic narrative um, in the moment, which I don't interrupt and, and, and follow. So you'll hear that during this solo. And it definitely... Um, like the timbre of the toms and 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 the kind of utilizing the kind of crush roll sound uh, definitely has an energy about it that kind of you know attracts me to play uh, these ideas 
then uh, and get kind of into that sound world, you know. So just check this out. Funny like little miniature uh, things, but I always like. I always, I always feel that the need to resolve the end of the phrases with with the low and the high sound, you know, like the, the kind of bass drum and the cymbal. Uh, always feels like it has a you know a sort of finality about it. It's got telling the listener, "I finished," even when the story might be quite abstract to understand in the first place. You know, but you're trying to. With the abstract, you're still trying to present a story that feels like it's got a, a beginning, middle, and end. And and this next solo is a little bit longer than the last one, and it's very similar to that. to let the symbols ring a bit and uh i, I mean i i think that solos like that uh are kind of the closest to what i feel are are a solo these days when i'm when i'm when i'm away from form and melody by the way i mean it's you know because it, it i feel like solos like that uh i hope they create like an atmosphere and they create a form and a melody of their own, which which engages the listener. You know, there's a sense, there's some kind of sense of drama or narrative or story or something, and that's what we're we're trying to achieve, aren't we? When we're when we're soloing, um, there's the kind of the drum solo thing can you know you can all feel really like we need to be drawn into the wow factor. You know, we have to have the wow factor. Whereas if we're like feel confident enough. 
the the we can get into this whole other way of uh, of soloing, this kind of atmospheric way of soloing. Um, and this last clip I'm going to play you now is definitely exploring what I would call a more textural approach. Um, it's all all almost utilising some extended techniques in inverted commas. I'm no specialist at all. Uh, if you want to check out uh, a specialist, even just a British drummer, amazing uh, extended technique drummer, Mark Sanders, just check Mark Sanders out. This guy is incredible. Um, he's amazing, and he's a real specialist in that area, but he has, like, amazing regular technique, if you like, but... He's real. He want. He's a free player. His thing is he plays free. Uh, and when I say free, I mean really free. You know. Um, and uh, we're lucky enough at, at college. Mark teaches um, at college, and uh, it's a real inspiration to a lot of students. They find his approach to music and soloing and expressing themselves really liberating, because it can be. You know, it can be really tough, this kind of uh, studying within any style of music that, and being within the, the canon or lineage of that music can can feel inhibiting if we're not kind of, if we're not working on our craft and understanding what we're doing. And, and also, you know, if we're getting away from following our heart, you know. And so that journey can be, you know, it can be painful, it can be difficult, but it can also be extremely rewarding and liberating in lots of different ways. And, uh I I found it by by really getting into thinking about melody and and also touch sound and all that kind of stuff. But I also I do like playing textually or freely. I enjoy that kind of sound world. The Spark Trio and and also uh, Jamie Sharif's Trio. Really, we explored a lot of that kind of sound world. Um, so this last solo example I'm going to play, which is kind of at the end of this spectrum. You've got the, the in-form melodic thing, which I was talking about at the beginning. Now we're out of form and we're playing textually and freely and atmospherically, if you like. Well, I mean, I think that's so ridiculous. Everything's atmospheric, isn't it? If you're not creating an atmosphere, then you're not creating the vibe to invite the listener into a sound world, are you? So anyway, check this out. Hopefully it will come across quite quiet some of it.
quite abrupt ending. But it's, like, it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? You just end when you feel it's the end. There's no pressure to say, oh, I must end now because I'm at the end of a sequence of bars or, you know, what somebody expects me to do. So, but it's, you know, the, the, those that kind of soloing can be, can be quite challenging for the listener um, and be considered quite self-indulgent. But I think if, I think, it's about having the right audience as well, isn't it? I think people want to listen to all kinds of stuff in the world, you know. And uh, people that want to listen to your stuff will generally find your stuff. Because I think there's an audience for everybody and for everything, you know, um, in music. Um, I mean, gigging-wise at the moment, sadly, very, very little's going on in the world. But, but it will return to normal again, I'm sure, soon. But audiences seek out the music they want to hear uh, and and they find it through you know the the spider's web of, of of different people that they meet and who they talk to and then they say they play with this that and the other person and then it's like everything refines doesn't it everyone refines to ultimately the way you find your taste and i feel very lucky because i get to play all kinds of styles of music and uh, i get to solo in some of them um and I enjoy that soloing more now because I feel like I approach soloing in my own way. Uh, and that's definitely, if I'm in form, uh, in a tune, and, I, and I'm thinking melodically, if I'm on a groove-based thing, then I think kind of melodically between parts of the kit, you know, like uh, like the snare, the bass drum, and... Uh, the hi-hat and all the ride cymbal, just that kind of conversational thing. I definitely think of players like, um, like well, Jon Christensen and, and uh, yeah, a guy called, uh, well, Jack, actually, Dijonette. He plays, he's, like, amazing. I, I, like, if you listen to God Bless the Child, Standard One, which I, I've talked about earlier, because it was a life-changing tune for me, that, genuinely. It changed the direction of... Um, of the music that I listened to, I, I I don't believe it. It uh, it changed it in a way where it was like a weird thing. It was definitely a, a change that was positive because it was something I think that I'd been searching for. You know, it's like anything that you know when you really anything really resonates with you, and you kind of oh, it's that something about the sound of it or the feel of it or the writing or the melody or something. It's like when you hear a great vocalist, you know, it's like, oh, it's, I've just been waiting to hear that voice uh, since the beginning of my life, you know. It's a profound thing. And I think that when we hear things we like, I think that's what's going on. It's like our brain woke up when we were born. And then as we go through life, things trigger those needs and wants and things that we desire or that we love, you know, that we want to hear or want to be part of or want to listen to more or explore or whatever. And uh, it's just a fascinating thing, isn't it? And with music and, like, singers and melody and styles and piano players or whatever, you know, just people that really resonate with you, it's um, it's kind of like those things have massive influence. And, and, and if you listen to Jack on God Bless the Child, just the way in which he solos over that tune uh, i'd play some of it but yeah you get done for copyright don't you so you go and check it out yourself um yeah the way he solos on that tune it's just like beautiful the, the like uh, the way in which he goes between the, the straight and then the triplet gears and he plays these kind of laid-back fills and 
And it was one of the first solos I'd ever heard where it was not based upon chops or technique or playing fast or playing impressively. It was based upon just stretching and being with the melody and being within this kind of beautiful feeling uh, vamp, this vibe, you know. Um, So, yeah, check that out. Definitely... uh, something that i yeah really was really inspirational to me and uh and he sort of and again it reminds me of this kind of ostinato sort of thing so i'm going to finish anyway today um just play a little thing to finish with and just say goodbye thanks for listening um really appreciate it try to do something a bit different today put some little clips in um probably going to do a few more different things like this with different styles and talking about some other bits and bobs of different things it's quite nice to do it's quite a good focus for me to to sort of sit down at the instrument and record a few bits and bobs um so yeah um so yeah back next week so this one's a bit late this week but it's just getting around to getting all these clips together and stuff and just being generally pretty disorganized as usual but um great so hopefully uh, see you again next week and, and uh, thanks for listening. So, uh, yeah, nice one. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.